Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023. Um, the war continues to rage. Uh, between Israel and Hamas. Uh, CNN are calling it the Israel-Hamas war uh, as the crisis deepens. Uh, according to the Jordanian uh, health-run ministry, uh, the Middle East is on the edge of an abyss, although it always seems to have been in that abyss. I'm not quite sure what kind of abyss it's on the edge of. New York Times in the last hour or two has reported that there are 500 dead in a an attack on a, a Gaza um, hospital. The news then is awful, really. Nothing to celebrate there. Meanwhile, the war is having a great impact on American intellectual life. Uh, huge debate about what American universities shouldn't, shouldn't condemn in terms of the different sides, the original Hamas attack, and then the Israeli response. Uh, it's dividing people. Harvard, of course, as so often in these situations, is at the eye of the storm. Some people consider it a storm in the teacup. Others consider it very meaningful. Huge debate in Harvard about a, a Palestinian, pro-Palestinian students. A lot of faculty are very unhappy with the situation. Meanwhile, it's affecting many other professions too. In my area, on the web and in tech, a friend of mine, uh, Paddy Gos Cosgrave, who runs uh, Web Summit, has got himself into trouble for making comments, which some people saw as slightly sympathetic, I think, to the Palestinians. Uh, and I'm quoting from a piece. Backlash to his comments was swift. Uh, one uh, CEO that he said that he was cancelling his appearance at the Web Summit. So cancelling seems to be the business of responding to all these crises. And it's appropriate today that we have a new book out entitled, appropriately enough, The Cancelling of the American Mind by Greg uh, Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott. Greg will appear on the show uh, next week, but I've got Ricky on today and uh, she is talking to us from Manhattan. Ricky, uh, congratulations on the new book that you co-authored with Greg. Thank you so much. It's, it feels very surreal that it's finally here and in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's for real and enjoy it, Ricky. Um, this idea of the cancellation of the American mind, it's been something that people have been arguing, discussing, denying uh, for a few years now. It's a good title for a book. Explain what, in your view, uh, is going on in America at the moment. Absolutely. So the inspiration for the title itself, um, it draws from The Coddling of the American Mind, which was a book that my co-author Greg Lukianoff wrote with Jonathan Haidt about um, the situation on college campuses and the degradation of free speech and um, also the mental health crises that have been just ripping, ripping across Gen Z in a really profound way. And so the genesis of this book was that I read that book while I was in college, I, it very much resonated with me. And I joined up with 
with Greg to write this book, and the foreword is by Jonathan Haidt um, from the original book, uh, originally to continue on the, the coddling of the American mind sort of thesis, but it became increasingly clear that we both really care about um, free speech and, and the degradation of of our epistemic uh, body of knowledge. And so we moved towards the cancellation route. Um, cancel culture is something that admittedly, neither of us actually like the term. We both kind of cringe at it a little bit, but we decided to lean into the term to describe what we see as an uptick in attempts to get people punished, fired, or otherwise deplatformed for their speech. And we define that as starting around 2014 and continuing to today. Um, and yeah, Greg and I really share a sense that this is this is a fundamental problem because if we cannot have conversations about the most important contentious issues particularly on places like college campuses then we're never going to be able to to solve problems with words and unfortunately i think ultimately will result to violence if we cannot if we cannot maintain the principles of free speech that underpin um, a pluralistic uh, democracy so ricky it goes without saying that the current situation in the Middle East is very divisive. Both sides are, are very passionate in terms of what they believe and where the moral wrongs lie. What's striking, and I think it's appropriate in terms of your new book, is the need or the want on both sides to punish people that they don't agree with, punish people by shutting them up, by not going to their conference, by throwing them out of their university. They're already been, I think, at Harvard, a uh, number of professors and bankers saying that they are not going to employ people. I think there was a new an, an, M, a new, an NYU law student who already lost his job because he articulated some sympathy for the Palestinian people. What is it that is bringing this out? Why do people want to punish people who don't agree with them? I, that, this is what I don't really understand. It's one thing to disagree. It's another to want to punish them. Absolutely. I think the, the reason that we used 2014 as our starting point for cancel culture, because of course there was McCarthyism and other instances of censorship all the way through the beginning of American history, but cancel culture works and is perpetuated so effectively because I, we believe social media enables it in a completely unprecedented way. And the pile on sort of tear down mobs are, are very effective at refuting people's points without actually having to refute their points and actually win any arguments. You can just deplatform them, take away their jobs. And in the process, anyone who might agree with them will be looking and watching and say, hmm, maybe I won't tread the same territory as a result. So I think social media definitely um, perpetuates cancel culture. And, you know, it Defenders of free speech are often put in really uncomfortable situations. I mean, Salman Rushdie, I think, put it very well when he said that the free speech uh, argument often invites the but brigade, where people say, I believe in free speech, but, and we all have some exception where we, we say, oh, this might be crossing the line here and there. But Greg and I very firmly believe that the legal protections of the First Amendment um, the First Amendment provides Americans and their speech should be um, more generally upheld in society. Of course, you have freedom of association, but at the same time, I mean, I when we were writing about this book, I did not envy Greg. We do we have a little bit of an autobiographical portion of both of ours throughout the book, and one thing that he wrote about. Um, without any knowledge that this would be the point in time where this book is released, is that when he first started working for FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a free speech organization where he's now the president and CEO, he was asked, um, actually, I think he 
quite literally landed like September 10th in DC to move there um, to start this new job. And then within days of September 11th, while smoke was still rising from the rubble, he was on TV defending the free speech rights of people who said things that he found detestable and I find detestable. But, you know, if you truly believe in free speech, you, you, I mean, I, 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 feel, I think right now I feel quite in a similar situation, weirdly, with um, a lot of the rhetoric surrounding the Israel-Palestine conflict. But it's important to not fall into the butt brigade and to put your own principles aside to say speech should be protected and canceling people is not a, a, a feasible route to actually a better, more constructive future. Yeah, I'm not sure if you really answered my question. You talked about 2014 and social media. What happened in 2014? Social media existed before 2014. Facebook was launched, I think it was in 2006. Uh, Twitter uh, began in 2007. So, so what's significant about 2014? I, this is like the mass popularization of places like like Twitter, where all of a sudden, if you look at the numbers, people, it, they swelled considerably. And 2014 seems to be the point in time where Gen Z arrived on college campuses and had a very different attitude on free speech. We believe that cancel culture was incubated on campuses and spread throughout society um, in the years uh, leading up to and past 2014, but I would say 2014 is is our definition of where there's a starting point of uh, upticks of people being publicly shamed. You have um, John Ronson wrote a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. There were a couple articles um, in The Atlantic and New York Magazine at this point in time talking about this new phenomenon of really ripping people down as a result of their speech rather than refuting them. And then I think from that point onwards, we saw a massive uptick in 2016 in in the lead up to and fallout of, of a very contentious presidential election. Following that, we saw a lot of people who wanted to say, oh, cancel culture is over. And that was just a weird little blip and a, a very un uncomfortable point in history. And then yet again, we saw it happen in 2020 when we had another uh, moment of, of cultural discomfort, obviously, and, and, and rightfully so between a pandemic and a lot of racial unrest in the United States. And Greg and I both share a fear that 2024 and the upcoming presidential election will be a similar thing. But I do believe that there's a meaningful connection between the ways that cancel culture operated and began to operate on college campuses with a very marked generational shift in, in views of free speech um, that that has been replicated in society more broadly. We are speaking with um, Ricky Schlott, uh, the co-author of an interesting new book, The Cancelling of the American Mind. Uh, she wrote it with Greg uh, Lukianov, uh, who, of course, is also the author with Jonathan Haidt of The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, American mind uh, doesn't seem to be in a particularly good state at the moment. I have to admit, um, Ricky, that I, I, you know, I run this show. I have hundreds of people, thousands of people on my show, and I, I just don't see any evidence of any of this. Uh, where is it? Is it you're suggesting that it all happened in 2014 when Gen Z came to American universities? I've got a couple of Gen Zers. I have. They don't like what I say, but they don't cancel me. What is it about Gen Z that 
has made them, in, at least in your view, such catastrophic, um, to have such a catastrophic impact on American free speech? Were they miseducated at school? Did they look at too much social media? Did they not drink their milk when they were kids? <laughs> I mean, I'm a member of Gen Z as well. And when you look at the, the, the percentages of young people in mass surveys that I can direct you to, perhaps in the show notes, that buyers conducted about attitudes and free speech, especially elite higher education um, colleges like like Harvard. Actually, I think the, the college with the highest percentage of students who said that um, that uh, violence is occasionally an acceptable response to speech was Barnard College. Um, I want to say, I'm pretty sure that was among the top, which is a woman's college affiliated with Columbia University in which you had uh, off the top of my head, roughly a quarter of students that said it was at least sometimes okay to respond to speech with violence. And I think this is part of a larger cultural shift in, in, um, in away from, from fundamental sayings and idioms that used to be very uh, near and dear to the American psyche, like to each their own and, and sticks and stones and words, words can't hurt you. And a complete inversion of that is what I see um, through survey data and through my own experience with young people who very often in elite circles of higher education have hold an attitude that speech can be violence in and of itself. And therefore, it's appropriate to condemn speech that you don't like or to respond to speech that you don't like with violence at least sometimes. So I do think there is a pretty marked shift in terms of um, the safetyism that I think surrounds uh, an, an allergy to dialogue. And, and this is not just anecdata. This is also um, FIRE has, has been defending people's free speech rights on college campuses for, for decades at this point in time. And since 2014, there have actually been 200 professors who have lost their jobs as a result of something that they've said or done. So this is not, these are not negligible numbers. Firing a professor is a pretty huge deal in, in, in an institution of, of higher education that is supposed to be predicated on, on free speech. And I think that we really should be concerned when the numbers are as bleak as they are. Well, I don't know how many people are uh, employed by American universities and uh, 200, it depends. It depends from case to case. Who knows why they were fired? I, I get the sense that there is a degree of paranoia here, Ricky. That you're 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 warning us, and this comes up always in America. This idea: oh, the culture's in crisis. No one's talking to one another. No one's listening. Everyone's intolerant. It always seems to come up. Nothing seems to have changed. What's different about today than? I mean, you mentioned McCarthyism. This doesn't compare to McCarthyism, does it? Well, in terms of the raw numbers, actually, yes, um, the number of professors, the most recent historical analyses have found that there are roughly 100 professors who were fired as a result of, of holding communist beliefs at a point in time where there was a legitimate international uh, fear of, of an existential fear, which does not in any way, shape or form excuse that censorship, of course. But this is now happening at roughly twice that that rate in the past 10 years, which is staggering. It actually, in terms of raw numbers, does blow McCarthyism out of the water. It's oh, just- but, but, hey, you're, Aren't you picking your numbers here? I mean, are you suggesting that we're in a worse, that, that, that America is intellectually less free, less tolerant than in the 1950s under Senator McCarthy? Uh, I mean, I'm saying censor censorship in all forms. I'm saying censorship in all forms is bad, and and that is a comparison point in terms of the scale. I mean, it's 
it's apples and oranges in a certain sense. But at the same time, I think we should be genuinely concerned when when professors, some of whom were tenured professors, are losing their jobs over expression because that is a fundamental betrayal of free speech values. Can you give me again? I have to admit I'm very skeptical of all this, but. Uh, maybe I just don't know enough. Maybe I'm, I'm not in the university. Can you give me an example of, of one of these professors who is a, a victim of terrible injustice in your mind? I mean, I think that anyone who loses their job for... Well, give me an example of one. Is, one um, okay, well, absolutely. Absolutely. One um, is his name was Mike Adams, and we have an entire chapter in the book about his story. He is was admittedly a, a conservative provocateur. He he said some pretty salacious things and and believed publicly and expressed the fact that he he believed he was um, kind of in in a cultural role of of satire and and kind of a shock jock role. Um, he knew Greg personally. He had won a pretty major free speech case. Um, I want to say like roughly. 20, 2005 or somewhere somewhere around there, and had a run-in with his university um, after being very publicly controversial with his writing, but all within the realm of, of, well, of free speech. Could you be a bit more specific? What, what, what was he controversial about? He, um, cultural conservative, provocateur, um, the, the tweet in 2020 um, that he, he effectively, he, he I don't want to quote it directly because I don't have it off the top of my head, but effectively the tweet that he he sent out that got him really piled on was a tweet about how he was with his friends during co during COVID lockdowns eating pizza with a group of guys and he can he equated lockdowns with um like servitude and slavery in a, in a way that was offensive, absolutely offensive. That's that's not something that I endorse, but as a free speech absolutist, it's something that I endorse the right for someone to say. He ended up um, having petitions directed to getting him, getting his job revoked. He uh, contacted FIRE and FIRE had an unprecedented swell of professors and students alike reaching out to them saying that their free speech rights were under siege. And Greg admittedly, um, this is a story that is really difficult for him to tell, but Greg admittedly, at that point in time, he had a bunch of people calling him and emailing him as there was a, a mass cultural unrest in 2020 and a lot of people who felt that their free speech was under siege and he thought to himself you know mike is such a, a big personality and character that like he's kind of at the bottom of the list of people to attend to when there are so many sensitive cases and ultimately um he ended up having people showing up at his house making threats calling his home consistently and the man ended up killing himself as a as a result of this cancellation campaign and i think that we should take really seriously that yes speech can be offensive yes speech ca can be and should be criticized but tearing people down attempting to get their jobs taken away showing up at their homes terrorizing them to the point where they feel that they no longer have the will to live is not an effective response to speech that we don't like yeah and i don't think anyone would disagree with you on, on that front it's a very sad story we are talking with ricky Schlott, the, the co-author of The Cancelling of the American Mind, a very controversial new book. It's out today. Um, I want to thank our sponsors of this show, uh, Liberties Quarterly, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, uh, edited by Leon, uh, my friend Leon Weaseltier, who himself um, 
in some ways that perhaps is a casualty of some of these wars a little earlier, uh, a few years earlier. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with uh, Ricky, talk more about her career and what we can do to address this, this crisis of liberty, at least in her mind, in America today. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out Liberties more at libertiesquarterly.com. You can even subscribe. We are speaking with Hi. We, I don't know why I want to call you Heidi. Ricky Schlott, the, <laughs> uh, the co-author of The Canceling of the American Mind. Uh, Ricky, you, you've written about being, um, shall we say, I'm, maybe this is the wrong word, a refugee from college. You've talked before the break about the, the, the absence of freedom of speech, particularly on college campuses. Do you see yourself as a casualty of this? Is one of the reasons you, you we, we, before we went live, we were, we were chatting, you were an undergraduate at NYU at the same time, actually, as my son was there. Uh, I never heard any stories about him, but he was probably busy doing other things. Uh, are you yourself a casualty? Did you drop out because of this cancellation of the American mind? I chose to drop out. I don't see myself as a casualty, but I did choose to drop out um, for a multitude of reasons. But I would say it's it's not just me saying that there's an issue of self-censorship. Nationally representative surveys that FIRES conducted have found that roughly two-thirds of students say that they self-censor, at least sometimes. That's not a, a, a healthy, robust place for debate. And the things that they say, if you give them a menu of topics to choose from, it's, it's often issues of abortion, affirmative action, um, transgender gender rights, like really important cultural growing pains that we have right now and the issues that matter most and that are tearing people apart, that college campuses should be the kind of place where people can have civil productive dialogue with one another and express their views and differing views and learn from one another on these most contentious issues. And I think that's why we have institutions of higher education in the first place, particularly in the liberal arts. I mean, certainly this is not as much of an issue in STEM fields. But I, I, I strongly believe that the, the state of free speech on college campuses is inadequate, that most young people don't fundamentally understand um, what it means to be a citizen in, in a country that guarantees free speech, that values free speech and pluralism. I personally had not even read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty until I pulled away from college personally. And that was a very clarifying moment for me where I, I felt very... Um, fortunate to live in this moment in human history where I have these rights afforded to me, at least on the books, and that that that's such an, a precious inheritance that that allows for a, a democracy to thrive and to be healthy, and for us to to talk beyond divides and and come to new conclusions and solutions. And I I think that there's a, a fundamental disconnect. I don't think that's something that a, a set of values that's really been inculcated in my generation. Um, and I would say no, I don't think I'm I'm some sort of victim, but um, just holistically having been. Uh, I, a young person during a pandemic, I, I would have been, I, I entered in 2018, I was 
uh, I guess three semesters or in the second half of my sophomore year when the pandemic hit. Um, and NYU demanded full tuition for Zoom school from me and my family, which we decided was not a um, an adequate service to pay NYU tuition for, frankly. Um, and that led to a leave of absence. And my, during my leave of absence, I began writing. I became super passionate. I began reading um, endless books and, and just devouring knowledge and, and going down my own path to the point where at a certain point I looked back and I thought, you know, this for me is not a necessity. It's it's very expensive. It's not ideologically um, a place where I I feel very challenged, to be completely frank, because there were not serious conversations happening about contentious issues. It was a bunch of kids who were sitting around trying to figure out how like how to um, glean the right answers from professors on on papers and, and write what they want to hear. Um, I didn't I didn't find the experience that I had on campus to be adequate enough to pull me away from the path that I was on. Um, I had some really great experiences at NYU, but I also um, am, am very happy to say that I think that that I've landed in a place where I hope more young people will ultimately. There are four million fewer college students right now than there were before. I would love for higher education to become more affordable, more more um, more delve more into free inquiry to um, to be more practical in terms of actually setting people up with jobs on the other end. But I think there's a crisis of faith in higher education because young people are looking at millennials saddled with debt. Um, with degrees that often are not applicable to what they ultimately do. And some of them are saying, you know, maybe this is not the path that I want to tread. And I think a healthy society will open their arms to them and, and be more accepting of alternative paths. I'm hearing two things from you, Ricky. On the one hand, there's perhaps an intellectual crisis within this Gen Z community of young people. On the other hand, there's a crisis of further education of, of, of uh, universities that don't educate. Uh, uh, yesterday, we did a show with uh, an American um, uh, doctor, uh, David R Rossmarin, uh, who's written a book about anxiety and suggesting that one of the crises of today is anxiety is treated as problematic when in fact it's normal. I'm curious, do you think that your generation has been over-parented? Uh, I know that uh, your your co-author in The Coddling of the American Mind made this point. Is this yes. the problem that you've been, you've been coddled, you've been helicopter-parented, and then you go off to college and you discover a world that uh, is different and that you've become intolerant to other realities, which explains why you're not able to listen or hear other people's opinions? I do think that there's an element of, of coddling and of, and of helicopter parenting that has made a generation far more risk averse and um, to feel as though they need to be protected from ideas with speech codes or bias response teams um, on college campuses. But I also think, I, I, I would be curious, I'll have to listen to that interview because I don't know precisely what his viewpoint is. Um, but I, I do think that there is an issue with um, anxiety being pathologized and, and medicated and treated as though it's it's something that's wrong with you. I do think that that is an issue. Yeah, um, I think you'll enjoy that conversation because he strongly argues that it shouldn't be pathologized. Well, I but I also would say a caveat on that that I, I think is really important to note is, yes, anxiety rates are are through the, the, the ceiling and as are depression rates with young people. 
but so too are self-harm, rates of self-harm and hospitalizations for self-harm and suicide among young people too. So it's not all an imagination of their mind. There's something more profound going on. Um, and I, and so I, I, my only reservation on that would be to say, you know, kids are following through and taking their own lives. And so I don't think it's entirely a moral panic. Yeah, basically what he argued, and I don't want to put words into David's mouth, so you'll have to watch the the interview or listen to it. It's a, it's a very good uh, conversation. He's very good. Is this sort of, uh, I think what he would call a, a, a moral absolutism that, that this generation, Gen Zs, you, you talk about. Are you yourself, though, falling into that trap? Are you also a moral absolutist in this panic about the cancelling of the American mind? In what sense? Well, you you seem to be very sure of yourself. Um, I I mean I don't think I'm I'm taking any moral absolutist sort of stance. This I, this book is not about um, about one side attacking the other side or or pointing fingers and blame predominantly on one side. I think it's about a general shift away from from some democratic values that are very important to a free society. We have multiple chapters calling out censorship on the right. I mean, I think you're right to to point in the beginning of this podcast to um, conversations that that we should be having in a more civil way about how do you treat dissenters on campus and is it right to revoke somebody's job offer? Is it right to to publicly shame people who were just affiliated with the club and didn't even know that their president was signing a letter? Like I, I do think that there's this is not some right left. Um, I'm I'm right about the state of free speech and and my side is the the victors here. I think it's it's calling out a general um, trend away from it. And I I, I think the, the examples that you brought up straight at the beginning of the show demonstrates that at least on this on some level we do agree that our our, our treatment of um, dissenters is not adequate and is not productive. That's all true, of course, but it, it seems to me that for, for all that talk of it being as bad on the left as on the right, this is an argument that gets picked up on the right and it gets used to bash the left. So, for example, I was looking at your website before. Uh, you, you're a columnist for the New York Post. You write for the National Review, The Spectator, both uh, conservative uh, papers on television uh, you've appeared on the OAN and Newsmax. I mean, it's true. You've also been on Real Time with Bill Maher. But do you think that in 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 reality, this has become a right wing conservative issue as a way of bashing the left? I absolutely believe that there are some people who comport themselves in that way, but that's um, not something that I believe. I'm not. I I'm not hiding my political views. I I'm a right leaning libertarian. I've written for a lot of conservative outlets. Um, my co-author is a lifelong Democrat and is on the left, and we are both willing to call out our own sides. Um, I don't, even though I don't, I really identify with the side personally. I am a political independent. Um, but we we come from across the political aisle, but share concerns about the way that the right and the left are are arguing with one another. And I think it's it's really important to say clearly, which is something that I get in trouble with with those on my side often for doing, is I, I take great deep exception to people on the right who sometimes fight 
a liberalism on the left with more liberalism and are fighting might with might and something like the stop woke act like that just strikes fear into my heart because that is indulging in exactly the sort of authoritarian instincts that you're trying to fight and so i think there's there are tons of people on the political right who are who might be in a moral panic about cancel culture who may say oh the state of free speech is so dire, but then when it's their own side and it's more convenient to just shrug it off, do so. Um, I would, I, I'm sure that I've made mistakes and, and missteps here and there, but I, I, I try my best to call out both sides as I see it. And it's been helpful to co-author with somebody across the political aisle because we may disagree on, on tax policy or, or the border policy or whatever it may be, but we agree with the fact that free speech is not in a healthy place at this point in time and that if we want to have a healthy society somebody needs to step up i don't care if they're on the right and the or the left i'm i'm more than happy to be friends across the aisle but somebody some some group some some new resurgence needs to step up oh, sorry my buzzer. let's see if i well maybe they'll stop it's um, it's 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 the mob it's, it's New York. <laughs> it's New York. Um, but I, th I think it's it's some somebody needs to stand up and be. Sorry, let me just address this. I will be right back. Be back. If you don't reappear, I know what's happened to you. I'll I'll bring the police in. <sighs> okay. Hopefully that solves that. Um, yeah, I take your point on this, but again, and and maybe. I don't want to keep on saying the same thing, but you're on this show. There are many other shows you're going to be on. The book's launching this week. It's. Um, I can hear you. I'm sorry. Ricky, you know, the, the book's launching this week. It's backed by a major publisher. You're going to appear all over the media. I, To me personally, but maybe you're right. I, I don't see any evidence of a major cultural crisis. But anyway, let, let's go to the end point, because I think here where I'm really curious what, 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 where you and Greg are coming from. So there's a big problem, a big crisis about American culture. Now we're in a similar crisis, the McCarthyism, blah, blah, blah. But there is a solution. So what's the solution? Really? How do we address all this stuff? How do we fix it? Well, so we have um, multiple chapters of, honestly, both of us will fully admit we're just kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks because we do think that we are in a crisis moment. Um, but one one chapter we have is about parenting and how we can raise kids to not indulge in cancel culture, to um, model conversations around the dinner tables and, and play devil's advocate and lean into teaching young people, once again, what it means to effectively interact with ideas and not just ad hominem attacks. That's one solution that we put forth. Another one on the higher education front, where we believe that higher ed is a, a, a place of acute concern in terms of free speech. Um, is we we both believe strongly that there should be a broader, more um, culturally embraced, uh, acceptable body of, of potential paths that young people can go down, whether it's apprenticeships or or um, even doing what I did and doing a couple of years and, and leaving and, and allowing the grip that higher education has on society and and the gate the gateway to success to be um, lowered. And I would also say a, a really major solution is for um, this is very relevant right now with, with the um, conflict in the Middle East. We have a chapter on corporations and what corporations can do to fight back um, and to, to 
insulate themselves against cancel culture attempts or, or um, employee protests that go awry. I mean, an example of that would be Dave Chappelle's show um, causing boycotts among Netflix employees over offensive jokes. Um, and one thing that corporations should do, and I think somehow in the past week have all woken up to this reality um, a little bit too late, at least in the world of higher education, is adopt a viewpoint neutral stance because institutions are not people. Institutions should not have opinions. And I think right now a lot of the silence um, admits this this conflict from from institutions of higher education is a realization that that perhaps if if institutions were actually viewpoint neutral, then they could be more hospitable for people with differing opinions. And I, I would point to Coinbase, for example, their CEO um, put out a statement about, I want to say like a year ago, where he said, you know, we we have concerns that there have been employee um, employee protests here and there, and we as a company are not going to take any viewpoints on any major cultural issues. It's your prerogative as an individual to have your own viewpoints on but your own. That, that Coinbase example is again what I said before. It's often used by conservatives. The, the Coinbase CEO, who at least out here is viewed as somewhat of a psycho, um, was arguing that people shouldn't be allowed to talk about Black Lives Matter issues at work. That's so, so again, it, it tends to. He was he was arguing against um, he was arguing against the the company making a statement publicly on it. Um, and and Coinbase people, is also a very dodgy company. But what about okay. self censorship, Ricky? Um, should people be a little bit more, shall we say? And I don't like this word. But I can't think of a better one. Sensitive about talking about stuff like the Israeli conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is so sensitive. Elizabeth Spear had a very interesting, I'm not sure if you saw the op-ed in, um, in, in the New York Times today when she was saying that I don't have to post about my outrage, neither do you. Should people just learn to shut up when it comes to, on, on the public front, when it comes to these issues that are so profoundly divisive that you're never going to change anyone's mind? And both both sides have deeply historical and emotional arguments. I mean, I would say I, I wouldn't call it self-censorship necessarily. I think you should feel free to express your viewpoints. But I do think that we are in an unhealthy cultural moment where um, politics have become very public and performative, particularly on social media. Um, and I, I would like to live in a world where there were some online forums or just more crevices of of day-to-day um, -day life where politics weren't so front and center. So I don't completely disagree with that, but I think self-censorship in areas where it really matters and like in a, in a classroom debate or in, in a contentious conversation with someone who, who actually has a skin in the game with a certain political issue, that self-censorship is not a good thing necessarily, but I don't think that we've yet figured out what the appropriate uh, method of conversation is on social media and whether all of us need to be putting our everything out there all the time. I mean, especially young people, it's it's become very, very performative and constant. Well, any young people watching, you got to pull your socks up, get a little bit more tolerant. <laughs> That's what Greg and Ricky say in their new book, The Cancelling of the American Mind. Uh, Ricky, you you noted that you hadn't read uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty uh, at NYU, and so you read it when you dropped out. 
um, in addition to your book and, and Mills on Liberty, is there another book that you would suggest people read to make sense of all this that can help educate them about a free society, a tolerant society, an open society? Absolutely. I think one book that I'm actually reading right now for a second time, I'm listening back to the audiobook. I read it um, several years ago, is Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, um, which John Haidt wrote the foreword to our book very graciously um, and was the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. And I think he is um, remarkably adept at putting his personal politics aside in a way that I don't pretend to be. I'm a, an opinion columnist at a newspaper with very obvious and open viewpoints, but I think he's a great moral authority of somebody who can explain the this the psyche and um and the way that that our brains our our tribal evolutionary brains are wired to to be divisive, to be uh, morally um, have knee jerk reactions to things, and how um, politics can really hijack that from time to time. So I think um, if if anyone is looking for uh, a, a really good overview of of how both sides politically operate and sometimes um, indulge in in more base instincts, I think that's a great place to to look. And um, certainly from someone who I admire and respect very deeply. And if you're depressed by Ricky's argument, hate is particularly miserable. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic. I think he's writing a book about it. Why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid when his book comes out. We'll get him on the show. Uh, so, Ricky, thank you so much. Best of luck with the thank book. You. Congratulations. And we'll have you back on. Very interesting subject. One thing's thank for you. sure, Appreciate like it. the Middle Eastern conflict, this issue is not going away. Thank you. Appreciate it.